folks, chapter 5 today. And so we'll read through it and I'll comment a little bit with your permission. Now here comes Frank. You were? And you're just following orders, Frank? Okay. That's really good. I can't hardly wait to see what this is. <laughs> Should I look at it now? No. You think, well, maybe it pertains to the class. Let's see. Just hang on just a second. Um, I don't think so. I'll read it, I'll read it later. later. Let me see who's, excuse me, folks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we'll read it later, and thank you for, for being voice. Can you see that small reflection? It is a little tiny. <laughs> Not only can I see, I can hardly hear what you just said. <laughs> All right, thank you, Frank, for this. We will look it over and attend to it. So Jeremiah chapter 5, uh, if, if you care to look along, that'll be good. Let me start reading to you. Um, first, let, let me let you know God is speaking to his representative in the day, Jeremiah. So these words are directed by God to Jeremiah. Here they go. Rome to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. And look now, take note, seek in her open squares. If you can find a man, if there's one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. So God essentially sends Jeremiah on a divine scavenger hunt. And he tells him, go into the city, capital of ancient Israel. See if you find one good guy. And if you find one good guy who seeks after truth and justice, I will withhold my just my uh, judgment upon the entire city. Does that sound familiar? Did anything like that ever happen in the Bible? Well, what is the incident? Yeah, yeah. It was Abraham, and God said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, if, if I find how many in Sodom that are good guys? Ten, ten. He started with 50, and he got it down to 10. So listen, I wonder if by implication God is saying now Jerusalem is 10 times worse. Because I would have withheld my judgment from Sodom if I found ten good guys. I wonder if God is saying, your people are so bad, if I find even one, I won't wipe them out. Maybe. Listen, I want to tell you something. The people in Sodom were not privy to the covenant of God. The people in Jerusalem were. They had a greater onus of responsibility. Tom, did you have... Yeah. I see what you're saying. Interesting. Now, Thomas, you're right. It's wonderful what, you, what, what you're saying. Here's the deal. This is probably a metaphor. I'll tell you why. There was at least one good and godly man in Jerusalem at the time, Jeremiah. 
And also in this day lived in Jerusalem a fellow named Josiah and a fellow named Zephaniah, who the Bible tells us were really good eggs. So what does God mean? He doesn't mean literally one. He means uh, Jerusalem and its residents have become so immoral, so ungodly, so degraded, the whole atmosphere was ungodliness to the extent you'd be hard-pressed even to find statistically a very small remnant, a very small minority of those who remained faithful to God. So that's kind of what's going on. Verse 2, And although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. So here's what's happening. It would be in a court of law or some legal tribunal. Someone is testifying, and that person in order to support his or her testimony, the veracity of it is saying, I swear uh, by the name of God. As the Lord lives, I swear that this is true. The equivalent is today in certain courts of law. I don't know that we still do it. Put your hand here. Raise your right hand. Swear by the Holy Bible. I swear. Do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth? You, that kind of, do we still do that anymore? Okay. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, it's kind of like invoking the reality of creator God and yet not walking in a way that is consistent with that reality. So in this day, God is saying, you know what they'll do? They will, in order to support their testimony in courts of law, invoke the name that is above all names, my name. But then as soon as uh, they sit down, they act as if I don't even exist. In other words, they swear falsely. They're Words are not consistent with their lifestyle. It's like invoking the name. You know, you ever see these award ceremonies on TV, singing or drama or movies or something? It's interesting to me how many people, they get up, they win the award, you know, and then they say, well, I first want to thank God. But then you know the lifestyle of some of them and you think, are you kidding me? So it'd be sort of similar. It is an acknowledgement of deity. Of creator. I want to thank God. But then if you go and live a godless life, it would be the equivalent of this indictment. They invoke my name, but swear by it falsely. See what's kind of going on? Now verse 3. O Lord, Jeremiah speaks, do not your eyes look for truth? You've smitten them, but they didn't weaken. You've consumed them, but they refused correction. They've made their faces harder than rock, they refuse to repent. It's a pretty desperate situation, folks, when there is divine discipline and it doesn't affect you. Oy. It's kind of like you have a wayward kid. You provide loving parental discipline and it's of no effect. Then you say to yourself, what's it going to take now? How, how, what, what will bring about change? So we could ask the question here, how in the world is God going to get wayward Israel to truly repent? How does God get anyone to repent? It's always a miracle. It's always divine intervention. Nobody is bent on repentance. We are all bent on rebellion. We do what seems right to us. It's in our nature. We all want to be independent of God. If anyone has turned to God, you can thank him for it. He enabled you to do it. You didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I think I will be a God-word person today. 
It's not in us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we'll pay attention to Jeremiah, and we'll see how God, even in spite of the hard-heartedness of Israel, can still affect her. So verse 4, Then I, Jeremiah, said, look at this, They are only the poor. They're foolish, for they don't know the way of the Lord or the ordinance of their God. So here's what he did. God sends him on this scavenger hunt. He says, I'll go to poor people first. Surely I'll find among poor people some good folk who seek truth and justice. But Jeremiah, much to his surprise, doesn't find any godly people amongst those who are impoverished. So he comes to the conclusion, oh, I know why. They've been deprived of the law of God. He's saying they have not been spiritually educated. They're poor. He's not saying they're unintelligent because they're poor. He's saying because they're poor, they've been denied the privilege of the rich. The rich had access to spiritual truth. They know about the requirements of God, but the poor have been denied that. Therefore, they're not living up to it. See what he's saying? So now look what he does. Nobody, uh, no good eggs amongst the poor, so he goes to the rich. Verse 5, I'll go to the great. Does your Bible say anything else for great? What does yours say, brother? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's not correct. (laughs) You know, just when I feel myself trying to be tactful, I realize it doesn't fit me. So in many cases, you're absolutely correct, poor in spirit. But in this case, because of its contrast with what's now coming, uh, we're talking about an economic uh, uh, differentiation. Because you see, I go to the great... Does your Bible say leaders or – yeah, there you go. See, see so that's, the, that's why I say uh, I think what we're talking about here is an actual socioeconomic hierarchy. Those lower on the socioeconomic scale, eh, they don't have privilege. So I'll go to the people higher ups, but look at this. I'll speak to them because they know the way of the Lord. See, they've been not been denied access to good education. They know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. But look, they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. So here's the point. Jeremiah is saying, oh my goodness, our problem has nothing to do with economics. It has nothing to do with education. Our problem has to do with sheer and utter rebellion against God. And everybody, poor and rich, small and great, are guilty. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So today... Some think the solution to societal ills is to grant a good quality education to everyone. I agree that a good quality, the best quality education we could make available must be made available to everybody, poor and rich. No question about it. Thank God for our teachers. Um, they're, They're not paid and accorded the respect. They're vital. There's no question. However, folks... Even the well-educated in our society uh, could be immersed in spiritual darkness. So education in and of itself does not address the real problem. It is a moral problem. 
So education is not the solution. Coming to uh, be rightly related to the creator is the solution. Look, 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 look. You can be an inner city person denied uh, of certain educational advantages who is sinning against God. But you could also be a PhD at Harvard who is, though well-educated, sinning against God. So you see, the, f- the fundamental issue is not education, education, education. The fundamental issue is a transformation brought about by Almighty God. Remember my dad, who's deceased now, was an alcoholic. And I remember uh, he would attend, because my mother would make him, certain uh, sessions, AA sessions and stuff like that, you know, where you learn about the throes of al- what it does to your liver and all this kind of stuff. Man, my father could have taught that class. He knew about cirrhosis of the liver and all this kind of... What are you t- the presumption was once you find out all the information about alcoholism, you'll be able to rid yourself of it? Oh, no, man. No. You really need outside help. <laughs> Don't you think? Do you understand what I'm getting at? I'm not saying that was a bad thing to do. I'm just saying it's not the answer. You can know every. Don't remember when Paul said, the very thing I don't want to do, I find myself doing? What's wrong with me, he said. It's, just, it's not just, we're an education-oriented society. We think if we just give our kids information, they won't uh, bear children out of wedlock. What? Our kids know more about sex than you would imagine. Are you joking me? It's not that. There's a moral inclination that's lacking. There's something inside that we need to help us overcome our normal sinful inclination. And that's from Almighty God who is holy. He has to envelop our lives, don't you see? So Jeremiah, see, I looked all over in society, big shots, little shots. Man, with one accord, they've broken the yoke. What yoke? Well, it's kind of another figure of speech uh, from, from livestock. You know, an animal is yoked. The master puts a yoke um, on, you know, two sheep or cows or something like that to get them to walk it. I don't know. I'm from the. I'm from New York. <laughs> we're gonna, you know, we're gonna, green acres is there. But anyway, <laughs> we keep our animals in zoos. You people like go out. But anyway. So, but you, you get the idea. So it's like an animal saying, oh, this is so cool. It's like an animal saying, I'm out of my master's yoke. This is so cool. I am free. And then the animal, the cow, whatever you put in a yoke, go, who? Uh, oh, okay, the oxen. There you go. Fine. Okay, the, so the eye. But then he said, oh, my goodness. There are uh, predatory animals out there that want to eat me. And then they say, oh, man, this freedom is not that hot. So God is using that analogy. Israel, I want to be your God. I want to be your king. I ask you to submit to me because real freedom is submitting to the real master. And you broke my yoke. You think it's freedom, but now check out the next verse. Look what happens. How many animals in verse 6 are mentioned? Yeah, you got about three animals in there. What are they? Yeah, so are those like household pets? No, man, you don't see them in the dog park. You do not want to see them in the Paraland dog park. They eat you. These animals eat you. That's the idea. Israel says, God, thank you so much for your offer, but no, thank you. We would prefer to do our own thing. And God, who is loving, says, oh, my goodness, you'll only see that your thing is not as good as my thing. By me letting you do your thing, uh, let me introduce you to, to the wolves. 
And that's been the case for Israel down to this very day, ravenous wolves and predatory enemies all around her. Okay, so that's what's going on over there. Verse 7, look at that question. God asks it, why should I pardon you? What answer do you come up with for you? Why? Imagine God asking you that. Imagine him saying, I'll put my name in it, but you did the same. Imagine him saying, Stuart, why should I pardon you? If God is saying that to you, what answer do you give? Say it again, because of Calvary. Yeah, 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 yeah. You would say, you shouldn't, based on my own merits. I don't have any. I've sinned against you. But you sent your sinless son on Mount Calvary to suffer and die for me in my place. I accept that. I believe that. And the father says, that's the right answer. Case against you, dismissed. Though your sins are as scarlet, it says in Isaiah, they shall be white as snow. Scarlet is red. Jesus' blood is red. When the father sees our sin, it's still there. He sees it through the lens of the blood of his son. It covers up our... Don't you see it washes our sin away? So that's the only answer. Folks, you've got to get the right answer to that question. It's not just about ancient Israel. It's about modern day you. Why should God pardon you? You're sinful. He's holy. There's a big gap. What are you going to do? How are you going to bridge the gap? You say, well, you've got to come to church. It's not good enough. If I got baptized, not good enough. I give money. Not good enough. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good citizen. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't dance. Well, hallelujah for you. Now we know everything you don't do. Not good enough. You know what all that is? It's a tower of Babel. It's an effort through your good stuff, what you do or don't do, to reach up to God. But you fall short. So do I. Now, you may be up there a little higher than I am, but big deal. You still miss the mark. By the way, that's what sin is in the Bible, missing the mark. So that's not a good answer. I'm a Baptist. (laughs) It's not a good answer. The answer is the one that was given. Oh, God, I'm a sinner. I did not make mistakes. I've sinned. I cannot blame it on my parents. I've sinned. I've chosen to rebel against you just like ancient Israel because I want to be the master of my own destiny. Oh, God, you have every justifiable right not to pardon me. But, oh, God, based on your mercy, you sent one to die in my stead. A penalty has to be paid. You're holy. He paid it. You're the God of love. You satisfied both key attributes, your justice and your mercy, in one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He stretched out his hands. And they were pierced through on a cross. And in one hand, he satisfied God's holy requirements. And on the other hand, he satisfied the fact that God is love. He died for sin, but not for his, for mine. I share all that. And the father says, good answer. You are pardoned. I have cast all your sins behind my back. You see it? It's a big, it's a big, it's irrelevant today as anything else. Why should God pardon you? I hope you have the right answer. Look at here. If you don't, Or if you want to talk about it because you're confused, I would love to talk with you privately during the week. Love to talk to you. Just give a buzz. Stuart, I'd like to talk. I'm not sure of the answer. 
Why should God pardon me? I struggle with it. I have, ups, I have doubts. Let's talk. What will it hurt? Give me a call. I'm the only steward uh, here in the church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. Why should God pardon? Okay. So then it goes on. Verse 7. Your sons have forsaken me. They swore by those who are not gods. When I fed them, they committed adultery and trooped to the harlot's house. So I ask you, is that literal or figurative? Yeah, it's both. (laughs) It is figurative. It's a reference to ultimate harlotry, which is spiritual. It's denying God, who wants to be heavenly husband, to take on false gods. But at this time in Israel, it was also literal. It was characterized by terrible sexual immorality, much like our society. Verse 8, they were well-fed, lusty horses. Is that literal or figurative? Yeah, now that's figurative. But here's the message. Because they're not actually horses. They're people, right? So this is the figure. What's it saying? It's saying, oh, my goodness. People created in the very image of God are acting like unbridled animals. Look, each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. Second haunting question, verse 9. Shall I not punish these people? Shall I not avenge myself on them? You know what we would say? Yes, God. You're justified in so doing. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 10. Would you read verse 10 for yourself? Tell me if anything in it is surprising to you. We've just built a case for Israel's degradation, immorality, spiritual adultery, and sin. Now read verse 10. Anything there surprise you? That is it. Do not destroy them completely. We would say, whoa. Oh, God, you are justified in totally destroying Israel. Wipe them out for what they have done. A people of great spiritual privilege. I got you, Charlie, but I'm more interested in hearing what I'm going to say. And so a, a people entrusted with great spiritual privilege, essentially saying, God, hang it on your beak. We would say, wipe them out, oh, God. Start with a new people. And then you read this. Yes, indeed. Go through her vine rows and destroy. That's a reference to God calling upon the services of ancient Babylon to invade Israel. But he says, nonetheless, don't execute a complete destruction. Now listen here. That is nothing but the sheer and utter mercy and grace of God. That's the gospel in a phrase. That's the good news. Look at here. If we erase verse 10, I'll tell you what you know about God. You know you better not mess with him. You know you're going to stand before him and he's going to judge your sin. You know he's a consuming fire. And you know truth. That's true. But there's more. If you put in verse 10, you find out that his righteous indignation is tempered by his mercy. For though he would be right in wiping out Israel, the Jews... He's preserved a remnant down to this very day. You want proof of it? Could you please explain? This is rhetorical. Why am I here? Why, I mean, why are my people alive today? 
There's no, there's, we're alive today because God kept, it, kept verse 10. I'm telling you, we're proof of it. Now, what's the deal? In every generation, God has preserved a remnant in Israel, and he will uh, uh, through all days leading to the ultimate day of the return of the Lord. Why? To demonstrate to everybody else that he keeps his word. He made promises to ancient Israel that have no condition to them. None. And though Israel has turned from God, still God will keep his word to Israel. And you know why it's important for verse 10 to be in there? If God affected a complete destruction of all of Jeremiah's people, all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all Jews, if God allowed for a complete destruction, you know who would be missing from your life? Jesus the Messiah. He's a Jew. I don't know if you knew that. But he are Jewish. You would have no salvation. So God has preserved the Jews. Through them comes the Messiah. Through them comes the rest of the word of God, all the New Testament documents. Through them, a temple will be reconstructed uh, during the millennial reign of Christ in Jerusalem. Through them, the Jewish Messiah will rule and reign from the throne. Through them, uh, uh, through him, you and I will go up to Jerusalem <laughs> and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. You see? So Satan knows about all this. He read the Bible. And if he could affect a complete destruction of the Jews, then you're going to be lacking a whole bunch of information about God. You're just going to know he's holy, he's powerful, he's the Almighty, but you're not going to know him as Abba Father. You're not going to know him as Daddy. You're not going to crawl up on his lap. You're not going to know he's forgiven your sin. You're going to think he made you pay the penalty for it. The number one basis for the assurance of your eternal salvation is verse 10 that God has not affected a complete destruction of Israel to whom he made promises and he will preserve you alive until the consummation of your relationship with him at the return of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, if God got rid of ancient Israel because they violated his covenant, uh, I've asked you this question before, I ask it again, the church is next. Why do I, I didn't say this church, and I'm talking about a particular church. I mean, the, the body of Christ in general. Why do I say that? Because historically, we've been an astoundingly privileged people, too. And I've got to tell you something. We've committed the same violations Israel has. In the name of Christ, all kinds of crazy stuff is going on, from pedophilia to infidelity to a terrible distortion of God's word to all kinds of... Uh, uh, terrible ambition and so on through persecution, through uh, uh, turning away from the poor and impoverished in society. I mean, Israel is here as a mirror of human nature. So if God got rid of Israel to whom he made promises, then my question is, when is he going to get rid of the church to whom he made promises? And the answer is never. Because as God gave unconditional promises to Israel, which he will fulfill, he gave unconditional promises to you. Here's one. There is salvation in no other name that is... No, here, I'll give it to you this one. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Could you please tell me what you offered God in order for him to give him, give his Son to you as your Savior? What condition did you satisfy? Just as I am without one plea, 
but that thy blood was shed for me. That's what you did. And you got what Paul calls an inexpressible gift. It's not a wage earned. You merited nothing. It's all of grace. Don't you see? So too with Israel. So if you get rid of Israel because she has fallen for grace, then you're next. Don't do that to yourself. That's why it's very, very, very important you not turn against Israel. That's not a political statement. I'm staying out of politics. That's not a political statement. That is a theological statement. You turn against Israel, you turn against God. And that's not good. If our nation does that, that will be the death knell. Uh, Tom? You're correct, Tom. You have to respond. And you offered him your believing response. You are right. In that sense, it is a condition to be, to be met. But I guess what I meant is it, it isn't a virtuous thing to receive a gift. <laughs> but, you, but you're correct. That has to be done. Yes, Billy? Yeah. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift. Of, yeah. Well said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. Donnie? Good, good point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the ability to respond is a gift from God, is it not? To be quickened. Well said, Don. Yeah. Well said. Today is the day of your salvation. Good, good, good. Okay, folks, wonderful thoughts. In fact, they're so good, I feel bad. I hate it when other people are right. I just hate it. Okay, look. Um, So verse 11. House of Israel, house of Judah, they've dealt treacherously. They've lied. Oh, look at this. They've lied about the Lord. How? Look, by saying this. Not he... Misfortune will not come on us. We will not see sword or famine. You know what they're saying? This God is love. There is no hell. There is no wrath. There is no judgment. God grades on a curve. God says, you're lying about me. What's the lie? You're minimizing the intensity with which God hates sin and must judge it. You're making an unapproachably holy God less holy. You hear a lot of it about this today. Do what you want to do. You know, God is love. There's no such thing. He'll never send anyone to hell. True. It's people, as you have so well said, who have refused his way out of hell who go there. But it's a theological lie to reduce God to us. <laughs> We are comfortable with sin. So, you know, you hear like when the uh, famous people have uh, an affair. I made a mistake. 
or when this guy, this politician who claimed to serve in Vietnam, never served in Vietnam, I misspoke. <laughs> see, 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 the Bible says, thou shalt not, yeah, it doesn't say, don't misspeak. What do you, it doesn't say, don't make mistakes. It says, don't commit adultery. Don't lie. I don't hear anyone say, hey, I have violated the second commandment. I have violated the fourth commandment, which emanate from a holy God and which are a reflection of his moral character. Therefore, I owe him a debt I cannot pay. I need outside help. Jesus paid it all. So it's still this attitude. I, I made a mistake. You know, I'll step back a little bit. I'll get some counseling. I'll get some counseling. You should have been getting that all along for crying out. All of a sudden, I got some. Oh, then it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm a sex addict. I'm a, I'm a sex addict. So all of a sudden, Tiger Woods found out he's a sex addict. So now he's in some expensive rehab deal somewhere. See, everything is made a therapeutic issue instead of a moral issue. I'm not saying I'm, I'm against counseling. I am a counselor. Don't misunderstand. But the issue is not that I got some diagnosis. The issue is I'm a sinner, just like ancient Israel was. I did this because I chose to do it. And I did it because I don't think God's going to hold it against me. You know, I'm just a, I'm just an, a normal red-blooded American. Yeah, I love my wife, but what's wrong with some physical relation with others? See, all this is going on until you found out. Then it's a mistake. I made a mistake. So, so God says, no, that's, that, that is erroneous theology. That, in fact, that's a lie against God. He is very, very holy. He's very holy. Look at here. You're riding down the road. You're exceeding the speed limit. You get pulled over. The officer said, do you know how fast you're going? You say, I don't know exactly. So you, of course you do. You're lying. And you, you say, okay, you're going like 80 in a 40. Really? Oh, my. <laughs> it's a new car. And you're going through all kinds of gyrations. And you even blame it on him. Hey, you know, why can't you go after, like, real criminals? You know, you do, the guy in front of me did the same thing. So you're going through all these gyrations. And the cop listens to your story and you say some stuff, you know, and, and uh, he lets you off the hook. So we kind of think God is like that. Look at here. Did you break the law or not? doesn't matter if everyone else is. It doesn't matter if you think you didn't. It doesn't matter if you never did it before. Doggone it, you broke the law. But certain cops, okay, they'll let you off the hook and so on. You do what you want to do. You're not going to get that with God. That doesn't apply with God. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. A sin this big must be judged by him if he's holy. If you say he's not going to, I just made a mistake. You're lying against God. His holiness is something with which we must make do. So he says to these folks, you're lying against me. Look what they said. The prophets, verse 13, are wind, meaning they're windbags. God sends representatives. The listeners say they're just a bunch of hot air. Uh, the word's not in them. So look at this. The people call, refer to God's word as wind. You want to see what he refers to it as? Look at the next verse. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth, Jeremiah's mouth, fire. They called it wind. He calls it fire. And the people would, and it will consume them. 
They minimized, diluted, ignored, rejected, watered down the forcefulness of God's word. They called it wind. He said, no, it's fire. And you're wood. So here's the deal, folks. Speak truth into society. Speak light into darkness. If you want to know, what do I do as a Christian today? Do I rebel against the government? Do I do this? This is a subject for another day. Uh, different ones of us come up with different answers. This for sure is the answer. Speak light into darkness. Speak truth where there's lies and deception. Speak the word of God. Yeah, but what if people call it wind? If it's the word of God, it's like a fire. I want to tell you, you know what fire does? It melts certain things. And it will consume other things, depending on the thing. The word of God will melt certain hearts so that they will be converted. Repent, confess, and acknowledge Jesus as Savior. But it'll but, but hearten other hearts. The point is, speak the word. So be very, very careful about too much focus on a purely political agenda. Be careful. Because even if you get a new political system, a new educational system, a new everything system, we still got the problem on the inside. Speak truth into societies. God gives opportunity. That's our mission. Salt and light. Don't be, oh, no, it's out of control. There's nothing I can, there's plenty you could do. Yeah, but they don't listen. God says, my word is so forceful. Later on in Jeremiah, he says, my word is like a hammer. It's powerful. Look at, look at. You know what God did with his word one time? Here's his word. Let there be light. Boom. That's pretty powerful, folks. Through uh, the power of his word, he created all that we know. Through the power of his word, he can recreate new life in the life of, of anyone. So be very, very careful. You could attack the president. You could attack. You could attack. You could attack. Okay, good. So you prove your point. So what? Don't you want to be a transformer? Don't you want to pray? Oh, God, let someone speak into the lives of our leaders and their spouses and their beautiful children. Let them have the same opportunity I had to see you, to hear of you, to love you. Don't you want to do that? I'm telling you, otherwise the world situation will eat you up, make you a big cynical beast. You're not going to look attractive at all. It's too much of a political agenda. What is your problem? Our citizenship is in heaven. Speak truth into darkness and let God have his way. So that's what it says there. Now look at verse 15. I'm bringing a nation against you. Now that's Babylon. It's an enduring nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you don't know. Can you imagine walking down the street, you're going home at night, and someone accosts you and, and is ordering you to do things and you don't even speak the person's language? Can you imagine how terrifying? You can't even beg for mercy. That's what God is saying on a national level. A nation's coming upon you. You don't even speak the same language. Their quivers like an open grave. They're mighty men. They're going to devour all the stuff listed in verse 17. Sons, daughters, cities, everything. Now look at verse 18. Anything familiar to you in verse 18? Did you, did you read that before? Where would you read it before? In verse 10. Look at here. There's no fat in the Bible. If God repeats something, he's essentially saying, listen up. He said in verse 10 what he repeats here in verse 18, yet, even in those days, I'll not make you a complete destruction. You see what's going on over there? 
It shall come about when they say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things? You'll say to them, As you've forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, you'll serve strangers in a land not yours. So the punishment fits the violation. Israel worshipped strange gods in her land. Now Israel will be carried off into a strange land by by those very people. Verse 20, declare this, proclaim it. Verse 21, foolish and senseless people, they have eyes but they don't see, ears that don't hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Don't you tremble in my presence? I play, Look at this. I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea. Is that true? Is the sand a boundary for the sea? Sure it is. Later today, go down to Galveston. You've got nothing to do. Drive down 45, kick off your shoes, walk along the beach. What are you standing on? You're standing on the beach. That's the land. So there be you, and there be the water, unless you go out into it. It's not coming to you. See? There's a boundary for it. You know what God is saying here? I have an eternal decree with regard to everything in creation order, including the water, the seas. Everything lives within the bounds I set, except you. Everything in creation order operates according to God's decree. God said, see, that's your place. Do not cross the boundary. And the sea says, yes, sir. And God says, people, these are your moral boundaries. Do not cross these boundaries. And we say, no, sir. You get it? We're the only element in creation order that disobeys God. That's what he says here, see? Verse 23, but this people, the sea listens, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and departed. They don't say in their heart, let's fear God who gives rain. Your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have withheld good. Wicked men are found among you. They watch like fowlers in wait. They set a trap like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full full of deceit. They're great. They're rich. They're fat. They're sleek. They excel in deeds of weaknesses. They don't plead the cause. That is the cause, it says there, of the orphan, that they may prosper. They don't defend the rights of the poor. Self-indulgence. Shall I not punish this people, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself? Now look, verse 30, an appalling and horrible thing has happened which begs the question, what is it? That is very dramatic, strong language. An appalling and horrible thing has happened. An attentive listener says, and what is it? Here's the answer. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. Look at this. The religious... Leaders of society do not represent Creator God. They represent their own words and ways and wills. To the people who they're supposed to serve. This is what the book of Revelation talks about in the end. One World apostate religion, but godless religion. How is that possible? It's easy. 
The world today is more religious than ever in the history of humankind, but that doesn't make the world more godly, does it? God says, this is what's so horrible. This is what is so appalling. Those who claim to have a direct line to me prophesy falsely. So folks, you have a proliferation uh, of religiosity today, even on such an occasion as the National Day of Prayer. So you have a lineup of religious representatives offering prayer to deity. And it goes from the Muslim iman to the Mormon pastor to the uh, lesbian Episcopalian priest to the uh, uh, Orthodox rabbi. You got the whole deal. Somewhere in between there, you got some born-again believer clergy who's got three words to share in the mix of all of this. That's the National Day of Prayer. Look at here, folks. Uh, It is horrible and appalling when religious leaders misrepresent God. So when religious leaders ordain those who are having very serious gender role problems, it's a very serious uh, matter when uh, religions teach that there are many ways to win God's favor and it doesn't have to be through Jesus alone. It's a very, very serious Look at here, this very chapter spoke about God's intentionality with reference to Israel, but do you know mainline denominations have a movement called divestiture where they're meeting with American companies coercing them to divest themselves of economic interests in Israel because they say Israel is the oppressor occupying lands that are not theirs. So you have, um, by mainline, liberal Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans and United Church of Christ and all the rest, (laughs) wearing crosses and all the rest, and doing that which is absolutely contrary to very clear stated word of God. God said this is horrible and appalling, but look at, you know what is equally horrible and appalling? The next phrase, and my people love it so. So I'll tell you what our tendency is here. We're going to focus our attention, our anger, and our contempt on leaders, political and religious. And I believe there is a greater responsibility for those in positions of authority, for sure. But every one of our leaders got there because they got elected. So I'm not so sure. The problem is just there. And my people love it so. This may come as no surprise to you, but Adolf Hitler is not the person on my top ten, you know, uh, most popular people in the history of the world. But Adolf Hitler didn't foist himself upon anyone. He was ushered into power. Stalin killed 12 million. He was ushered into power. Ceausescu in Romania, terrible dictator, started out during a time of economic downfall and the people were looking for a messiah an economic messiah. And then, of course, he turned against them. Idi Amin in Uganda. Uh, On and on and on. So be very careful 
uh, yeah, there may be a problem with leadership, but I think the deeper problem is with the folks who support the leadership, who make promises they cannot keep in desperate uh, need for a savior uh, other than the real savior. Yes, sir. Twenty percent. My brother said he, he heard it said that twenty percent of evangelicals vote, which is terrible. See, that is something a Christian citizen can do. Vote for who you want, but vote. But my point is what's very, very appalling. Instead of allowing Almighty God to be our king, we've essentially said what ancient Israel said. No, we want a king like all the other nations. We would rather give you lip service, perhaps in courts of law and national days of prayer, which is praying to who knows what, a God in everyone's fashion. We would rather do that than fall on our, our knees and, and uh, bless you who have blessed us as creator of God. So God says what's horrible and appalling is religious leaders, political leaders are not turning you to me and you don't seem to mind. And my people love it so. And now the last uh, sentence with which we end. But what will you do at the end of it? Another haunting question. Several in this chapter. Why should I pardon you? And now this one. What are you going to do in the end? What does this mean? When life as we know it comes to an end, we all have to make do with the commander-in-chief. We all have to stand before him. What will you do at that end time? What will you say? Will you dare look me in the eye and say, I didn't think you were that holy, so I freely engaged in unbridled unholiness? Will we look him in the eye, risen Savior, nail-pierced, hands, though in a glorified body, and we will say, oh, we did not know you were categorically different. We thought you were a religious leader like others. Will we look into the eyes of almighty God and say, oh, we thought we could fix it all ourselves. Would you dare do that? Be ready for this. There is an end. And we have to make do with God. The best thing to be able to say is, Oh God, like everyone else, I have sinned against you and you only. Thank you so much for granting me a pardon at a great price, your own life. And now I am so glad to be home. You think you could have that measure of certainty that that's how it's going to go down? Yes. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. What will you do in the end? Some of us know with assurance, I will waltz into eternal communion with the King of Kings because by faith he has granted me the privilege of establishing with communion with him now. And it just endures throughout eternity. Why should God pardon you, a sinner, number one? 
two, if you don't have it, his pardon, what will you do in the end? Pretty important questions. Do you have answers? Are you satisfied? If not, can we talk? Would you be willing to talk privately, confidentially, personally, no shame? Oh, no. What respect we would have for you to want to broach discussion. Do you have good answers to these? Why should God pardon you? And if you're not certain you are forgiven, what are you going to do in the end? What are you going to say? Will you know him then as judge or will you know him as Abba Father who says, welcome home, good job, we'll be together forever. What is, what? You got to know it. Nothing else is certain. Eternity, yours, can be sealed. What will you do in the end? Why would God put that question in here if the answer couldn't be known? Stuart is my name. <laughs> I'm here during the week. It's not just me, any of the ministers, but since I'm the one here today, uh, I just counted a privilege. Why don't you give me a, a, a call? Everyone has problems, whether it's physical maladies or employment situations, finance. I understand that. We talk about whatever you want. But I've got to tell you something. They pale in comparison to this one. What are you going to do at the end? Jobs won't matter. Illnesses won't matter. Divorces won't matter. Death won't matter. Nothing will matter. What will matter is you're looking into the eyes of Almighty God. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? Are you going to get a hug? Or are you going to get a verdict of guilty? Don't you see how Everything, nothing else matters in comparison. If you'd like to chat, just give a buzz. If I'm not available, you could email. You could say, hey, Stuart, here I am. Uh, here's my name. Here's my number. Give me a call. Let's get together. Glad to do it anytime, anytime. Lord Jesus, that's who you are, Lord of all. And we know it, those of us who know it. By your grace, we're not better. You are, and we see you. We want others to see you. You're the hope of the world. God of all hope, would you firm up our joy and peace in believing in the power of your Holy Spirit so that in an age of uncertainty, we can be certain about the basis for the pardon and about the nature of the conversation we will have when we see each other one day face to face. Father, for those of us who are in you, giver of life, the future represents the best which is yet to come. Your perfect love casts out all fear, even of death. For the one, the two, the more in here who don't have that kind of assurance, I pray you would stir them up so that they do something about it. Talk, discuss, think, seek be open. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. Please save others, even in this place. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, folks, blessings to you. And Lord willing, if he doesn't come before next week, we'll do Jeremiah chapter 6. See you next time.